Welcome to Babendum Radio. In this new series of podcast debates, we invite industry experts to discuss a variety of hot topics. Warning, contains fervent and geeky opinions. Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome to Babendum. Uh, what I think we're going to do, first of all, is go round the table uh, and introduce ourselves so that uh, we know who you are, what you do, and, um, and then we can get on into the, the, the meat of the day. So, Bert. Hello, uh, I'm Bert, I'm uh, a sommelier and yeah, a free agent at the moment, good for hire. History? History, um, so I was previously head of wine at the Mindrake, uh, before that um, I assistant head of at the Clove Club and, and then various other restaurants. I'm originally from the north, Born in beautiful Stoke Contract, famous for its wine production, obviously. Uh, and then worked in Manchester before that as well. And then ended up where everyone ends up in London. Brilliant. And what's your name? I'm Fawes Pouillon. I'm wine grower in, in Champagne. I produce Champagne in the Mount Valley since 20 years. So you've just, you've just begun. Yeah. <laughs> we might hear a little bit more about you in a minute, Fabrice. Thank you very much. And what's your name? I'm Sandia Chang. Uh, I'm owner of Bubble Dogs and Kitchen Table here in London. Hi, I'm Carol Bryan. Um, I just opened a wine bar restaurant named Lady of the Grapes in Covent Garden. I'm Richard Devigne. Uh, I'm a wine grower in Champagne, uh, close to Reims, in Montagne de Reims. Uh, I'm Frances Adams. I am working for Bendham as an account manager in central London, and my background is actually in winemaking and viticulture in South Australia. I'm Willie Liebes. I uh, currently am employed by Bendham and have been for 30 years or so, uh, and I'm in charge of wine development at the Bendham. So, how did you welcome everybody? It's great to be here. So, really, the idea today is to talk about champagne and in particular grower champagne um, and the reason for doing that is because we're very lucky to have two eminent growers with us um, and I think it's a it's a fantastic opportunity particularly with the, the group of people who are in the room to try and get maybe under the skin of grower champagne a bit to understand um, what the opportunities are in the restaurant business in particular for grower champagne why people should really be interested, some of the differences, although I don't think that's the end of the world. Do they fit in with the whole world of champagne in general? And to uh, try and actually maybe get the message out that the world of grower champagne is incredibly exciting. So I think uh, without more ado, the first thing I'd like to do is perhaps uh, go back to both Fabrice uh, and, and Richard and maybe they could, for five minutes, give some background to um, each, each of their properties and a little bit about their philosophy and background. So, Fabrice, can we start with you? So, I'm located in the uh, Vallée de la Marne, especially in Marais sur Aille. Uh, so, I cultivate six hectares around Marais sur Aille. Uh, and my uh, big uh, grape varieties is the Pinot Noir, and I cultivate some Chardonnay and Pinot Noir. And my first job is to produce some grape, because I think the grape is the most important thing in my job. Uh, after that, making wine and bubbles is just uh, uh, yeah, patient. 
so um, I think uh, the vision of the growers is really different than the vision of the big brown because uh, I, I cultivate some vineyard in one region in Champagne, so I, I am here to give the real expression of my region. Uh, so my work in the vineyard is very important because the soil for me is important and uh, grape varieties and the vines is just here to take the aromas and the expression from the soil to the grape. So it's just a line. Uh, so for me working on, on the soil and the vines is uh, really important. So you would consider that uh, your wine is mostly produced in the vineyard? Yes, yes. My, 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 or if, if I uh, uh, see my job uh, for one year, I work 80% um, 80, 80 of my time in the vineyards. In the, in the winery, it's just to control that the vinification well done and there is no problem, uh, and uh, to make uh, some uh, uh, act, uh, especially to have the bubbles when we make the bucking, but after that, it, we just have to to give the way uh, to have the real expression from, from the vine and from the, the region. And very briefly, Ferris, so I think everybody can understand how much importance you attach to what's going on in the vineyard, but in the winery, if you were to give um, uh, some expression to how you bring out the character of your wines, what would you say are the key things that you do uh, in the cellar? to bring those characters out. Uh, Do you use wood, for instance? Yes, I use wood, uh, I use natural yeast, uh, and uh, I use a limited quantity of sulfur just to control the oxidation. And that's all. I think, um, just, just to explain, um, we have a fruit, uh, we press the fruit, we have a juice, and after that, naturally, the juice uh, from, from grapes become vinegar, okay? Binga is uh, wine natural. So humans have to control a little bit different way to be a real wine. So th that's my job. But I can do that naturally, just to control temperature, yeast, bacteria or not bacteria, and, and, and that's natural. But we, we, just here, we are just here to control this uh, process. And that's all. So I prefer using wood because I think oxidation is better for my wine to give more expression from my soil. I prefer using natural yeast because I think uh, the, the region, uh, the terroir, it's a big name, but uh, terroir is a mix of a lot of things. It's the soil, it's the grape, it's the, the yeast, and it's the growers and, and the climate. So it's a mix of uh, many things, and I think natural yeast is, is better for, for the expression of the terroir. And after that, I don't have to make something uh, against the, um, the wine process. Uh, uh, you can imagine sometimes in the wine process you can filter the wine, you can uh, add some, some enzyme or some bacteria or, or some, some, uh, a lot of product. Uh, but it's just like a doctor to control because there is a problem. If the wine is good, why adding something? Uh, so it's just my concept of the vinification. Perfect. I think that's a really excellent start to, to this discussion and therefore we already, I think, are getting one or two uh, ideas here that the words I think are very much part of this discussion. It's not this is, it is, this is the way we do it. And I suspect there might be some differences about to happen here. So Richard, uh, perhaps
perhaps you could do the same for uh, La Cogobillon and who you are, what you do, etc. Uh, Champagne La Cogobillon is, uh, is um, we produce uh, some wine in Ecueil in Montagne de Reims, in west of France. Uh, mainly Pinot Noir, 85% and 15 Chardonnay. Uh, we work on 8 hectares and we, we work, uh, I totally agree with uh, Fabrice uh, for the philosophy. We work on the same philosophy, I think so. Uh, we work with uh, wood and stainless steel. Uh, the, main, the main job is in the vineyard. If you want to, to show the terroir, you have to, to work in the vineyard. In the winery, you have to, to check only, not to uh, have any interruption for me. And you, you put some sulfite le, uh, and so some yeast, uh, so something for me, so something for me. <coughs> uh, for wine growers, the philosophy is to make champagne with a specific terroir, not to, uh, to do only uh, bubbles. It's, it's very important for, for us. We, we make a, a wine uh, before to make a bubbles. Perfect. You may be hearing a noise, and it's actually me playing with bottles. <laughs> it's a very exciting thing to be doing. So we've, I think, immediately established the background, really, to, to this is all about what happens in the vineyard, what are the philosophical differences that makes growers champagne so exciting and I think it's a great opportunity maybe to start the conversation off so in no particular order Bert you happen to be sitting on my left um, would you mind putting into context your approach perhaps to the subject of growers champagne with your customers I think you're actually uniquely well situated to talk about this because um, coming from a hotel background most recently uh, you would have had an interesting mix of customers um, and like it or not um, it also was not your own place it, you had owners who probably were looking for a, a little bit of return on their investment but I know everybody is however you also needed to interpret what your approach to champagne would be for your customers in a slightly perhaps more competitive and commercial environment than maybe if you were an owner operator who wasn't going to be terribly worried about what other people necessarily thought that's either my way or is the highway. Sure. Um, so the way I approached, well, I was very lucky when I started at the Mindrake because I was there when we first opened, so I didn't inherit any um, stock and I had to create the list exactly how I wanted to. Um, and, and luckily we had a few different bars, restaurants going on inside as well. So for the restaurant, I had a different, completely different approach um, to wine and specifically champagne. So for the restaurant, I wanted to create two pages next to each other, and they were all um, sparkling wines by sub-region. So I started with the um, champagne wines by sub-region, north to south, all the way down, and then picked out, I, th I think in the end, I had about five or six for each region. I felt really strongly um, told the story and very typical to that sub-region, um, but because of the clientele we sometimes got, they'd look at the list and be like, who's this Solosco, I've never heard of it, like, it's that much money, like, have you not got any crude? I'm like, so that got a bit frustrating and, and constantly having to talk to tables and you find a lot of the time people aren't really open to have a conversation about it, they just want a big name, they want a big name, they don't want out. 
So I did in the, the cocktail bar next door, I built a list um, around, because I didn't want to do it around big names, so I did it around vintages instead. Um, which is a cop out, I know, but um, so I picked up some of my favourite vintages and um, a few a few wines that I could present to people as perfumes as well, some really interesting, unusual stuff, and had the bigger names over in the cocktail bar instead. Um, and then I had a, a pouring, uh, we poured our house, house, house champagne in the um, the bar was Renard, so we had all the Renards, Bon de Blanc, Rosé. But in the restaurant, I rotated it. I, I treated it like uh, a pub landlord and rotated it every, like, I don't remember how often, every 10 cases or so. And it was a great way for the staff to get to know all these different sub-regions that they might not have heard of, but also for the guests that were coming back all the time. Uh, and then occasionally we'd have magnums as well on a Saturday night open. And when people see them go around the restaurant, they would, you know, see like a, a, a magnum or something like Pierre Peters or something like that, and get really interested. But that's a size thing, they didn't know the producer, it's just a, a cool thing to drink from the back, I think, in a, in a restaurant environment. But that's the way I approached that. And do so you like, think that uh, within that environment, your customer said a couple of things to pick up on, one, um, that's clearly a need in an environment like yours to have Grand Marc simply because there are people coming in who don't care particularly, um, or aren't interested enough to care, and therefore they want something to give them reading between the lines, uh, confidence yeah. of what they're having, and therefore a brand does that. Yeah, well I don't blame them as well, it's a lot of money, it's a big investment, and if it's a special occasion and they're celebrating, then they, or they want to impress somebody and they really want to get a special bottle, going with a name that they don't know, even though it is the loss. Sometimes they just need a little bit of reassurance, and sometimes they're like, I've never heard of this guy, like, I, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to spend that kind of money on a wine I don't know. Um, but. And I think that's a really good point, except if you look at the, a wine list, there is going to be, let's take Burgundy, there will be a lot of references on there where you don't know the name, and yet people will buy Gevray Chambertin. And, uh, you know, which is why, but, uh, nonetheless, what you say is correct. It would seem, historically, Champagne, Grand Marks, not Grand Marks, that brands are there to help people who are spending a lot of money give them confidence. And one of the questions we need to think about today is how can we instill confidence in people who are out there um, and who trust the sommelier or trust the person buying the wine yeah. that if you've got uh, Fabrice Puyon or you've got La Corcovion on the list um, and they've never heard of them, they should take it for granted that it's going to be brilliant because you've chosen it, but nonetheless there's still that doubt in their mind. Yeah, sure. Is that about? Is that about? It's a tough one, and that's what I was trying to do in the restaurant by building the list around the sub-regions of Champagne and trying to give them a little bit of confidence that way. But it, it, yeah, you're, you're you're very right, and it's it's it, it can be a risk for them because they can taste it and just not like the taste. It can be very unusual and unique. And I suppose with the, the big houses as well, what you're getting when it's non-vintage, you're getting a lot of consistency and a lot of reassurance, which can be a good thing. Like, Depends, yeah, but they've got a lot of reassurance because they've already had that wine a hundred times, and it's it's a weird one because the champagne is the only place where you can really say that, and, yeah. and everyone else is all the producer. So I think that's a great opportunity, maybe to to, to, to flip it over to Sandy and ask you, perhaps having listened uh, to what Bert had to say, what are uh, you know perhaps some of your responses to to, to that. Yeah, well, I, I feel like I'm quite lucky because it's my own business, so it's basically my way or the highway. 
to everybody that comes in. Um, I can't express enough my passion for growing producers. I, I mean, I ended up opening a, a restaurant just to advocate grower champagne producers. Um, there's different ways that I had to approach it because it is difficult. People will come in and see nothing on the list that they recognize and will automatically turn to, to me and say, well, your list sucks. There's nothing I, I know on there. Um, that's, uh, one is the money. Sometimes I find that because, you know, grower producers are not necessarily extraordinary in pricing. So, you know, there's nothing seriously expensive on, on the list and automatically because it's not expensive. They think it's not good enough. So um, so I try to make it fun, you know, bringing the whole hot dog concept and getting people to come in and feel like it's not necessarily a celebration drink. You can drink it anytime, anywhere, with anything, with anyone, you know, and, and I can adjust my margin however I like. So we price it very, very low um, so that it encourages people to try it and feel comfortable trying things they've never seen or, or heard of. And... I'd rather them pay less for each bottle and drink more than a lot for one bottle. You know what I mean? It's, mm-hmm. it's just to get people to drink and feel comfortable drinking things they don't necessarily know. So for the purposes of, of um, people who will be listening to this, what, um, how do you price your, uh, your champagne by the glass, for instance? So um, I make a point that to never price a sh- glass of champagne more than 11 pounds a glass. I know in London, it's um, on average, it's about... 13, 14 um, for champagne. And I make very little margin. Um, I make at most 50% margin on, on all of our, our champagnes. So it just encourages people to try it, you know. Like you said, it's, it is that fear sometimes to invest in money in something they don't know. But if you make it accessible, then, you know, it's not a big deal to, to spend eight pounds on a glass of champagne. Mm. No, and then the rewards can be absolutely magnificent. Yeah. So just on the subject that, that Bert was talking about, and which I, I know exists out there, um, you, there are a lot of people, it would seem, who think, uh, but in, actually empirically uh, observing these ideas is completely load of rubbish, but they think that champagne is a category where suddenly their confidence about buying things disappears because they need the reassurance of a brand to get them over there. And, and, and as you know, we were saying earlier, if you were in Sancerre, well, suddenly, you know, it's, 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 Sancerre is, is the key word. Rather, like champagne would be the key word if only people understood it. And you need to reassure people who are buying not just wine but champagne that if you come to a restaurant which you come to, you made the decision, it's not an issue, that it's a grower rather than a grand mark. This isn't about uh, trashing grand marks, anything but. Grand marks are incredibly important in the world, in our world, simply because they are there, they've been there a long, long time, and in a way they are there for our, our grower friends to actually be able to say, well, they've set the standard, and our role, well, let, we could possibly discuss their roles, but I think, you know, anybody who actually thinks that marks or anything other than a help in all of this, they are mistaken. I think what we're trying to say today is that everybody has a choice and there will be occasions where if you've got wonderful grow champagnes as a choice, treat them in exactly the same way that you would other artisan wines or artisan food on the menu and actually have the confidence that wherever you are eating and drinking that uh, you should actually just 
go with the flow rather than um, perhaps be worried about it. So, Carol, you're, you, you've, you've got a brand new place, yep. which is really exciting in horrible London, which is <laughs> very challenging. You're an independent person, mm. and it's really exciting. So just tell us a little bit about what you're doing, and then perhaps the role of yeah. growers as far as you're concerned. So, in um, so all our wine is organic, biogenic, and natural. So we don't have any big name, I mean, Big name, but in a natural wine, which is a bit different. Yep. We, we speak about producer, which have like maybe like ten hectares maximum, or only small producer. So when it comes to champagne, I mean, no, no one will come and ask me for a, a mum or emotional or whatever it is, because I don't have it. So I only have like small producer, and people come for for that to to see something different, to to meet the terroir as well, not only the the wine making and the consistency. So they want something interesting. So, yeah. And how is that going down with your uh, with your customers? Yeah, pretty good. Yeah, I mean, people uh, people love it. They enjoy it. Um, they discover a new thing. So it's a lot of talk as well. Um, each time we sell a glass, we we speak about the the winemaker, the story, uh, what's behind, why <coughs> it is like that and not like that, and everything. So it's really engaging for the conversation as well. So, so we share something different with customer. You picked up you, you picked up on two things that were really important. One was the story, yeah. and I think right now, um, wherever anybody is going out to eat, if you want people to come back again, you need you need to give them stories and you need to feed them with excitement because I I, I think that the successful businesses are those that actually you want to go to for more a little bit more than. I always want to go somewhere where I know the product is going to be the best. Uh, I don't want to pay a lot of money, but I also like going to places that they say, oh, God, it's you again, Willie. Uh, <laughs> went to you here 10 minutes ago. But they treat you really as a friend almost. And, and then it's about, okay, what are you going to show me tonight? I'm going to actually show you like a Gobion because actually, you know, they are bio, but also their terroir in Ecoye is... is amazing because that's where all the Pinot Noir uh, used by a lot of producers used to come from uh, as an idea. Mm -hmm. So um, I buy into both everything you, yeah. you say there. I think it's really important going forward. Now Francis, you work for Bibendum and I think um, you have some insight perhaps about the challenges of selling grower champagne to your customers and then perhaps how they sell on to their own customers. So, so how easy or difficult is it, not with our illustrious um, group here today who are, I think for the most part, understand what, what's going on, but maybe for the, the unconverted, what are the challenges for selling grass champagne in the market? Um, I, I think the it's a chain of challenges. Um, as we spoke about earlier, a lot of consumers or clients, guests, they, they struggle to invest uh, a lot of money or potentially risk sort of losing face um, when it comes to choosing grower champagnes because they're slightly intimidated by it. And I, I think it's our role as an industry to help them engage more, to learn more about the product. And big, big grand marks, we, we talk about them in comparison to grower champagnes, but I'm not quite sure how well they, they fit into this conversation today because to me they're, they're completely different offerings. Growers, 
it's more of a hands-on sell. You need to educate your customer, or my customer, so sommeliers, but also hold consumers' hands a little bit and get them excited. Get them excited to drink what's in the glass and realizing that they're getting much better value than you would with other bigger producers. I think that's very well explained. And in fact, you've encapsulated what the challenge is. And what we need to do is use our opportunity of, of this podcast, perhaps, to get across what the real uh, excitement is here. And maybe that gives us a good opportunity to ask the boys. We've got, I'm sorry that anybody listening to this, you can't do this, but we happen to have two of our friends' champagnes in front of us. And what is, what is terrific is I do think, I, I, you know, I know their wines because that's all I drink when I'm at home. And I really do know these wines, uh, but they demonstrate two completely different approaches to um, what makes grow champagne. So, so we have um, here one of Fabrice's wines. Well, actually, let's start with Richard because his wine was poured first. So we've got your uh, Premier Cru Mipont, uh, Richard, and then uh, we've also got uh, Les Blanchiens. Uh, 2011 in uh, our other glass. So, what is what is so special, for instance, about this Mipont? Mipont it means middle slope. Uh, all the vineyards are the same elevation for this cuvee. Uh, it's only Pinot Noir with 20% uh, vinified in oak and 30% uh, from uh, mainly from the harvest uh, 14 and 30% uh, with a wine from uh, 13. And uh, we keep in our, in our cellar uh, 32 months before the disgorgement. And it, it's very uh, a good image of Ecueil, I, I think so. It's a very uh, Pinot Noir of Ecueil with a sandy soil. With, it's a good image, I think so. The important thing is uh, we do a wine from Champagne, not only Champagne. It's very, very important for me. I think that is very well explained. So um, for those of you who aren't perhaps um, lucky enough to be tasting these. Uh, uh, what what Richard said was, was it's very much a wine. I think it's absolutely hits it on the nail. When we are drinking growers' champagnes, it seems to me that the major difference between these and uh, rather more anodyne uh, Grand Marks is although they can be blended, they very much have an identity surplus um, of 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 where they come from, and they taste vinous, they taste like wine, because actually if you leave these overnight with both Fabrice and Richard's wines, it's great, you leave these wines and some, the fizz will disappear, but I think partly because the wines are both biodynamically produced, the stability of the wine, and also the low dosage of the wines, you can taste them, and they are they just they taste like magnificent wines that are very very stable. So, uh, as you said, this comes from Mipon, so halfway up the slope from a variety of different uh, vineyards. Yes. Yes. Three three different vineyards, something like that. No, it's quite four, it depends on the year. But quite within a five kilometer radius. Perhaps. No, no, less than uh, one kilometer. One kilometer, exactly. And the dosage you use? Is three. The is do dosage can be 
different uh, each year because we adapt the dosage of the wine. It's, it's not a philosophy, low dosage, low dosage. We have to adapt the dosage. To the but wine. but in in essence, it would seem that great growers' champagnes tend to use lower dosage. They don't need to mask the yeah, character of the wines by by putting more sugar in there. Mm, sure. um, so. Thank you for that. And uh, based on 14, uh, and then Fabrice, we are tasting your Les Blanchiens 2011. Yes. Tell us about yes. that. So um, I, I can just explain why uh, there is uh, this, this cuvée in my range. Uh, just about the history of Champagne. Uh, always the history of Champagne, there is no classification. You have one appellation, Champagne, and the classification after you just on the name of the range. So you buy, uh, uh, you, you say the name, I can't say the, the name. So <laughs> you, you buy a brand and you don't buy anything else. So I think me, Richard, and many growers try to make another classification in Champagne. So the classification is based on the, on the terroir. Uh, a lot of big brands make uh, goût maison in French, we say. So I think we do the goût of the soil. So it's quite different. So in my brand, I have uh, many different cuvées and with uh, classification from the region. So we can begin with non-vintage, we see which is for me a regional appellation, a mix of all my different vineyards in the same area in the Valle d'Anal. And at the end, we have a single vineyard region. So that's why Les Blanchiens exist, because uh, it's uh, one of my, my parcel in the village of maroy sur so this parcel is located at the middle of the coat of Marai on a very classic soil of my region. So clay at the top and chalk and one meter. And uh, the exposition is south. So it gives a really powerful uh, wine and champagne. Uh, so we make the vinification all in barrels uh, for, for this vintage for 18 months. And after we make aging in barrels for I, uh, five years, sorry. Uh, with, uh, we, we call in France uh, tirage sous liège, so we don't use uh, caps, but we use a cork for the aging in the cellar. And, and this particular cuvée, uh, every time we make, since uh, vintage uh, 2007, we do a brut nature because it's a really a very powerful terroir, so with no dosage, it, it gives more fineness and more minerality to, to this champagne. So that's zero, that's zero dosage, yes. and yet the wine is beautifully balanced and uh, has a lingering aftertaste. And I think it's very clear I, I, it's, 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 um, that there is a major difference between the styles of those two wines, uh, and yet they are both, you know, they are both very relevant, I think, to today's customers. So I guess. Um, Given that you have those two wines, let's just maybe go around the room and, and uh, examine ways that you might talk about those to your customers. And, and uh, do you think that there is a market for what, what I think a lot of people consider very distinctive wines, which aren't, they're not the brute reserve, which both our friends have got, and we're deliberately not tasting those today. Um, they are more specialist, so is there a market there but for, for these two? 
Um, yes, for sure, um, especially in a restaurant environment as well, because they both pack a punch, they've both got a lot of complexity to them, and the agent has really benefited both these wines, I think, as well. I think, I think that they're showing really interesting characteristics in both wines and in a restaurant environment, because a lot of the times people, for some reason, want to have a bottle of wine which is going to match everything that they've ordered off the menu, which I don't even understand how they think is going to work. But Champagne's probably one of the only few wines that can actually do that and actually have a nice experience. And so I think these are, these are great um, great food wines at Pack and Punch as well. And, and, and a lot of interesting things going on here as well. Do you think that's our fault as an industry, sort of training people to drink wines that match with all of the dishes on the table? Yeah, there seems to they put a lot of pressure on it. Like, we'll just, I'll go to a table and before I'll even introduce myself, they've already told me what they're having to eat. And what's the recommendation? I'm like, whoa, whoa, we need to get to know each first. Like, what do you like? You know, <laughs> I mean, it's not their fault. I think they, they feel under pressure as well. So, you know, you have to just get to know them a little bit. But um, these champagnes, yeah, very accessible as well. Um, they're, they're not too challenging. So a lot of uh, smaller growers as well can be a little bit challenging and probably not for the everyday drink. Like someone like Chelsea following you try it for the first time, and like, what's going on here? Um, which I really enjoy when you get to know them. But... The, these are both very, very approachable. Um, the, the grapes are very easily identified as well, like on the, on the nose and the peanut and all that's beautiful. It just jumps out straight at the glass to you. Um, but there's lots more going on in there as well. Um, yeah. So mm. yeah, I think that'd, that'd be very enjoyable for, for all kinds of drinkers. Thank you. Um, Sandy, what, 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 what's your take on perhaps these two there and their kind of, their in, in context with customers who are out to have a good time don't necessarily want to uh, join the church too quickly yeah. but but we're out there to, to, to perhaps in you know enjoy themselves how do these um, what's the relevance of these slightly more specialized versions of the growers well I think we touched on the fact that there that things need to have a story behind it and I think with grower producers it's great because you get to know the people who are in the field you know, pruning and trimming and to in the in the glass in front of the guests, and I think that's amazing to have. Um, I always explain it. I mean, it's quite a dramatic explanation, but I grew up in Saudi Arabia where alcohol is illegal, and my father used to make wine in our bathroom, <laughs> and he used to uh, go into supermarket and, and buy grape juice, like bottled grape juice, and take it home with uh, homemade wine kits and mix it up and. And it, and it was the first wine I ever tasted. He was a bomb Most horrendous wine I've ever tasted. And I'm quite surprised I still enjoy wine now. Um, but I always think about uh, grower producers in that sense that um, they're not out there buying something that they had no connection with. And, sh and making sure that the guests know that there is a connection between what they're drinking to the actual person that's making wine of growing the grapes is quite, quite important. Mm -hmm. um, how we make it approachable for these wines is that we, on our list, we categorize all the champagne by the taste because people who see a wine list might get very intimidated on like, how do I know what it tastes like? And I'm afraid to ask. So we categorize, you know, our, our champagne list with, you know, stony mineral or for a puyon probably in the, in the fields and flowers lots of sort of hay and, and grass and 
and um, the for Lancôte would probably be more fruit. Yeah, and then we differentiate yeah. um, ripe fruit and and unripe fruit. And I always explain it: if you had a bowl of fruit your mother puts out in the living room the first day, that's the you know fresh fruit, and then after a week, that's the ripe fruit. And it makes it easier for the guests when they see it to, to understand what is it that they like and what they don't like, and they can narrow it down and make it feel more comfortable for them. Brilliant. And, and, and a supplementary question is, um, clearly there is the opportunity for you, particularly as you are a specialist, to offer a pretty good range by the glass, which is, is coming back to what Bert says, mm -hmm. takes the risk a little bit away yeah. from not knowing what the hell it is they're going to have, so they can have a glass of that followed. And, and um, so two questions. One, would, I, uh, would this be the sort of style of wine which you do offer by the glass? And secondly, uh, what's your conversion rate from somebody who might order a glass or something and then take a bottle after that? So I would put both of these by the glass at the same time because they're so completely different. You know, you've got something much more fruitier, something much more mineral. Yep. Um, you've got something with vintage. And, and it's just a good selection because anything by the glass, you want to make sure there's one for everybody's taste on there. Um, and what was the second question? Just um, <laughs> and, so they then take the oh, glass. Right, yes. Do those customers who are buying by the glass and convert to taking a bottle, do they carry on, uh, as it were, on their mystery tour of discovery? Yeah, both, I think. I yeah. think at Bubble Dogs, it's uh, a lot of guests go <laughs> and try as many glasses as they can because it's a place where they can do that and yeah. it's not very pricey. Uh, we also do Tuesday, put in the marketing plug here, Tuesday to Thursday night if you buy a whole bottle you get two hot dogs for free. So it really encourages people to buy the bottle and, and to commit to something and enjoy it, you know. And it's, it's about, terrific idea. It's about getting to know the wine too and I think sometimes by the glass and you switch to something else you don't really get to know the wine. So yeah, so Things like that. You're doing a really good job of selling. Christine has just written me a note in my book. So that anyway, yeah. Yeah. No, okay. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm absolutely. So my mother was from Chicago. So you know, I I know more about hot dogs than this yeah, healthy. Sure. And um, I just the idea of going to have some hot dogs and making my mouth water. But I, I think lots of interesting um, points you make and and uh, difference between these two is not about whether one is better than the other, it is about the different styles. Trying to um, get across what those styles are, in two, we're using one-dimensional words, but I, I think I love the idea of the fruit bowl, because I think it's a really good one, and I think sometimes we uh, make the, the, the job of, of the poor customer much more difficult by trying to sort of retain the mystery. There is a mystery here, no doubt about it, and that is how the hell can you turn grapes, grown biodynamically, uh, and yet the precision that actually is in this glass. And maybe very quick question, which I'm going to ask uh, you, Carol, because um, you mentioned the word natural. Mm -hmm. and. Um, I'm interested just from a consumer point of view, these are both natural wines and yet I am very familiar with flavours which maybe aren't quite this precise in terms of, uh, and Fabrice earlier mentioned vinegar, I would probably mention the word cider. Um, and how do you work with your customers on the whole subject of natural wine and champagne and what they should expect? Um, so well, we, if you tempt someone to order something 
we're not sure if they know what they are doing. So we always explain. So if we know like it's a bit quirky wine, we will tell that oh, you know this wine is a bit special. You have kind of really yeasty flavor, or yeah, we explain how it is. And some people oh no, oh, <laughs> I don't want that. Or some people say yeah, I know it and it's fine. Yeah, it's. Um, it's really important to, to describe because people don't know and sometimes they're afraid about the word natural biodynamic and say, oh no, I don't like that. But they're right because sometimes they're just walking and oh no, I don't like it. Well, you know what, you, you are going to try it a bit and you tell me after if you like it. Which is how you deal with it. Yeah. So you actually give people We have a lot taste. of wine by glass and so we just make them try and to convince them, you know, it's not because it's natural that it's quirky or special, different or mm -hmm. sometimes it's natural. But it's just well made. So because I think you know the natural wine for me is, um, it's not like uh, uh, when we say minimal intervention. You know, I think that's pretty wrong thing to say because actually you work much more when you want to do something clean than when you put a lot of product inside because because you can rectify everything with product. But when you don't have product, then you need to to work to control everything to, to be sure everything is clean and there is no development of bacteria and everything. So it's, that's. Although there are some producers, and um, again, you can't see, but there is no <coughs> smoke coming out of my ears at the moment. Yeah. But I think we would all agree there are a lot of wine lists in London which go down the natural route and which can be very unsatisfactory mm -hmm. because you open the bottle and, and there should be a health warning on it because yeah. although <laughs> it might be made bio, it might be made biodynamically, mm -hmm. the result is something which is perhaps not quite the cleanest thing that you want to have yeah. and I, I struggle with um, with drinking dirty wine I must say uh, but there are others I know who like that flavour and again I don't want to really broaden this conversation into areas which perhaps <laughs> are more suitable later at night we need to convert you Willie but, but <laughs> no I am converted but I'm converted to these mm. wines they're bio they're clean and they're very very uh, they're quite sophisticated and they're very complex, but, but, they're, but they're clean. But in my wine list, I always say, my wine are, we, we, can, we, we can feel the terroir, we can feel the grape variety. You know, I think it's, you cannot recognize the grape variety, that's the problem. So, I'm for natural wine, but you need to be well made, so that's all the point of it. Perfect. So I think it's a good opportunity maybe now to bring the, the two growers in with um, the importance of viticultural practices in your vineyard. I don't want to use words which may or may not be relevant, but, but Risha, let's start with you. Both of you, I think, you said you completely follow Fabrice's philosophy as well. Uh, what are you doing in the vineyard uh, which is particularly important? I don't want to get too geeky, but um, clearly biodynamics or organics are part or inform your process. So. What is your what is your philosophy? Uh, we put nothing in the uh, in the soil. It's very important. Uh, we control the uh, the yield. It, it, it's it's uh, important. We we have a, a clear clear plant, a clear uh, clear vines. Uh, when not uh, a lot of uh, grapes uh, by foot. It's it's very very important. If you control that you have a better quality than if you have a lot of graves by, uh, by foot, a lot of, <coughs> lot of mushroom in each. 
And the, the job is in, in, the, in the wine. And we work only with uh, three different, we are five people, and uh, only us working in, uh, in our vineyards. Nothing by uh, other people. Nothing do by So you add nothing in the vineyard, you said that, correct? You add nothing yeah. in your vineyard. What do you do with the soil? We work the soil and we cut the grass when uh, in the row. You don't plant. You don't plant any seed. You don't put seed or grass seed down the rows. They yeah. just grow naturally. Every year, the grass grows. Uh, yes, it depends of the, uh, the of the plot. Yeah. And uh, we we work the soil before the flower. In, uh, after we let the uh, the grass. In How the deep do you work the soil? What what depth do you work the soil? Do you break ah, the it, soil? It's very uh, very thin. Uh, only three or two, two or three centimeters. So you don't want to disturb the geology of the soil underneath, because that's an normally I, I believe an important part of bio is yeah. is that you don't want a deep. No 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 no. It, you, want, but you want to keep the, the soil light, but, yeah. but not compact. In surface, it's very so important. Okay, cool. And then in terms of your controlling yield, are you doing that in uh, the spring? or in the summer or both? Uh, in the spring and during the... Uh, when uh, we do the, the pruning and uh, in the spring go in, uh, in the vines and uh, get out uh, a lot of... Uh, thing. The uh, material? To yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. So, Fabrice, the same <coughs> question to you. What are you doing in the vineyard and yeah, what's going on to make your wine? Um, so just to continue about the work naturally in the vineyards, don't forget that the vines is a plant which don't make fruit if you let naturally. The vines grow by the top and if we don't cut the vines, they don't produce some grapes. So humans is very important to control the production of grapes because naturally the vines don't produce some grapes. So we adapt the pruning and the culture of each grape varieties, of each uh, soil. So I have uh, 35 different uh, plots and 35 different uh, practices. Because I must adapt on the grape, on the vines, on the soil, my practice. So my practice are very similar than uh, uh, like with Godbillon because uh, we really want to respect the soil, so I think that uh, our soil and uh, the vines must to approach the, um, the growing of the forests. The forests uh, grow naturally. You have nothing in the forest. You have many different types of trees, and the production is great. So I think we must make a similar thing in our vineyards. So that's why we let a lot of other plants uh, growing naturally in the, in the vineyards. We just make, make plowing uh, before flowering and, and after uh, we need a control uh, and make a competition uh, to, the, to the vines because uh, uh, we make uh, in our different type of soil some uh, hole to control the subsoil, the soil and the roots and I want that the roots take the, the aromas from the subsoil. So we taste before uh, Les Blanchiens and, and the result, you, you, you say that it's very well balanced. And for me, it's the real expression of this terroir because you have the clay at the top, which gives the, the fruits and the power, and you have the chalk 
which gives the minority. So I think my job is done because uh, you you really uh, give the expression of the soil of this this person. Well, as long as you're talking that way, this comes from 2011. Yes. And, and I guess we have the opportunity to talk about vintages. You and I were talking yesterday about the fact, I think Blanchiard is a north-facing slope. Did you yeah. say that? And I think that more and more people are going to be searching for north-facing slopes in um, in places like Champagne because clearly... The sun doesn't get on there all day, and 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 most. Uh, if you read all the wine books, you'd say, oh, that 2010 was a great vintage, and maybe uh, eight or whatever. But 11 is not necessarily an anecdote. It's no. not. Sorry, it is not a year that was necessarily regarded as being a great vintage. And I think tasting Blanchiard 2011 lays the lie to whatever one expects from a great vintage. The fact is the wine is great, and it's not always about the year, it's about what you do with the year. Yes, in, I, in I the, can think of something else like that. Too. In the wine business, uh, we always yeah. say that you can test uh, worse on the bad vintage. Sure. It's very easy to make a good wine mm. in a good vintage, but it's mm. more difficult to make a good wine in a bad vintage. And I think, yes, we have many things to do, in the vineyards uh, to take the best of the vineyards every year, uh, especially the, the year where the, the maturity is difficult. And the problem of 11 is just is after 2010. 2010 was a very difficult harvest about the quality of the grapes, and I think many growers in 11 don't want to take the risk and, and, and make a harvest at the uh, wrong date, yeah. yes, and, and uh, they don't wait that... Uh, so they pick too early because yeah, sure. of that? Yes. Yeah, and it could be the same problem uh, in, in 18. Uh, we had uh, last year big problems uh, with uh, bottle dice. Uh, we have lost, I've lost 25% uh, of my production because we, we selected uh, all the grapes when we make the harvest. And um, you, we, we decrease a lot our production in, in 17. And many growers in Champagne do, do this. And for 18, we have a very early harvest. And uh, the maturity of the grape was in August and uh, very quickly. Normally, for me, uh, the, the maturity uh, from the beginning of the raison to, to the harvest, it takes three weeks. And this year, uh, because it was very sunny in August, the, the maturity takes two weeks. But uh, in two weeks, we just have sugar. We don't have uh, aromatic ripeness. Yeah. Yeah. So we really need to wait to have more aromatic, more minority in the grapes, and we need more sugar for that. So we do that in 18. I did that in, in 11. But many growers don't wait and think that uh, 10 degrees naturally is great, and, and they don't have the, the fruit aromas. They have the vegetal. Just imagine that a grape. At the beginning is vegetal, it's a flower, after it's a vegetal, and at the end it's a fruit. And you have a, a, a change which is very important. Mm. Have you ever thought of going into teaching? Because that was beautifully mm. described and uh, really important, I think, for, for everyone to understand maybe one of the major differences between growers and the bigger houses is that the growers can make strategic decisions immediately and the houses have to take an overview, which might result in the bad decisions being made, because that's exactly what you said. You guys, rather like our friends who are also here, who own their, their businesses, are totally in charge of, of what happens. 
uh, and as a consequence, that 2011 uh, tastes quite magnificent. Which brings us on, perhaps, neatly to uh, the other two expressions that we've now got in, in our glasses. Again, you have to imagine, if you're listening to this, that in one of our glasses we've got uh, Richard's uh, Brut Nature, and in the other glass we've got a very beguiling pink wine, uh, which is Fabrice's uh, Rosé. So, uh, Richard, perhaps um, let's talk about your Brut Nature. So, Brut Nature is a, it's a blend of 50 Pinot Noir, 50 Chardonnay, based on uh, 12, uh, Harvest 12, with 20% of 11. Uh, and uh, it's uh, only from uh, tank uh, vinific vinification and we late uh, around six years uh, on lease in bottles before the disgruntlement. The alarm is going off because it's so excited to hear about <laughs> that. Um, so this, uh, this is based on 2012 yeah. with 20% of 11. of 11 in it. It was only uh, it was fermented in stainless steel, yeah, sure. and then it was then it was matured. Um, sorry, so fermented in steel. Uh, and how long did you keep the wine um, prior to secondary fermentation? Then, uh, for this cuvee, yeah, it's uh, close to six years. So, um, and the remarkable thing about if you open it and pour this is it tastes like the wine was actually comes from last year. It's very very young. Incredibly stable again, and it's uh, no dosage. Yes, and yet very, very complex in in its own way. Because twelve uh, was a very uh, good year. Well, uh, <laughs> I, I suggest you had very good grapes. Well. <laughs> that Maybe is, that is a beautiful expression of very, very delicate, very delicate champagne, and just uh, it blows. It blows wide open everybody's philosophy about dosage again. I think if you you start with great grapes, you just don't need to mask their flavours, and that is that is the epitome of beautiful, elegant champagne. So, congratulations. Thank you. Let's hear uh, Fabrice, and 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 I couldn't resist bringing your rosé in here because again, I think this is a very particular wine uh, with a real character of its own. So perhaps you can tell us about about the rosé. Yeah. So. Uh, so my rosé is made with only Pinot Noir grapes, so it's uh, just grape from my village of Marisuai. So to make rosé in my uh, domain is uh, just a different way to give the expression of the terroir of Marisuai. Uh, we make rosé de maceration, so it's uh, very uh, hard work in the vineyards because uh, I, I want to have the Pinot with a very high level of maturity and expression uh, because I, I do a very short skin contact. Uh, so we make a skin contact around 12 hours. So for that, to have nice color, nice fruits and good expression of the soil, uh, we need to have a very uh, beautiful berry. And after the short skin contact, we take the juice, we press grape and we make uh, classic uh, vinification. So, um, 80% uh, in, uh, in tank and 20% in barrels and we always blend two macerations so this year was uh, 15 with 20% and 14. And so 15, 20%, 14 aged how long uh, after? So after, uh, uh, two, two years after fermentation in, in the barrel. So I, I think 
my my rosé uh, maceration is uh, really uh, wine for drinking with not very long aging uh, on the leaves because I really want to give the expression of the Pinot. Thank you very much. So let's um, let's let's talk to our experts around the room. Uh, let's start with Carol. We'll go the other way around. <laughs> so. Well, <coughs> What are your thoughts about those two and commercially perhaps um, selling them, uh, yeah, selling them at um, Lady in the Grim? Um, well, <laughs> I think they are both beautiful and um, obviously very different, but um, yeah, it's wine we can sell by glass, definitely. And rosé is currently as well something very popular uh, in the sparkling wine world. Um, Particularly so uh, next Thursday, yes. <laughs> but even <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So there is no even for Provence rosé, there is a season for Champagne rosé or water sparkling rosé. There is less; it's less seasonal, yeah. and people will have a sparkling rosé like at any time. So that's quite interesting. We always have sparkling by rosé by glass because good. That's also something different, and you know, it just. Maybe also, you know, it's so pretty. You can have food because it's pretty good wine for food, but you can also have it by itself and sort of thing. So that's um, always interesting. I can't stop drinking. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's I'm very pleased to hear that. I think you and Bumpy will enjoy yeah, it. No. Yeah, no, very good news. But great, I mean, the, this one is so fresh, it's incredible. It's just mm. so easy drinking, and I can do a few bottles mm. if I wasn't pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> Um, rosé is, is a bit tricky because there's so many different styles of rosé. And I think a lot of the in the in the customers find that rosé needs to be a certain way. And this particular rosé is, I would say, is not what a typical 23-year-old girl would want to, you know, drink. <laughs> and so for us, it's it's quite important to to know the style of rosé. Um, if somebody wants to come in and drink a rosé with raspberries and strawberries, I definitely wouldn't recommend this. Uh, somebody who wants something a bit more, a bit more complex, a bit more mineral driven, less fruit, but um, it, this is something I would definitely recommend. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, rosés are tricky to sell. They are, aren't they tricky? And I, I think in a funny way, it's, it's therefore again a challenge for us, uh, actually, let's ask you, Francis, uh, yes. yeah, talk, talk about the two wines and, and Possibly how you would sell them or encourage your customers to sell them, yes. That's a, that's a tough question. I, I, You're the one to answer it then. Uh, persistence, I think. <laughs> uh, and going back to what I said previously about engagement, I mean, you just need to get these wines in, in front of people. And I use the word wines very deliberately. I, I, I think it's better to encourage people to engage with uh, these, these wines as wines, not as champagne, because I think you enjoy them very differently than you would a lot of other more commercial products. So I just get them in front of as many people as possible, and once they try them, they buy them. It's quite easy. Yeah, but it's, it's, I think that's a really good point. I, 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 you know, we go, there's a thread running through this conversation today, which is, it's almost as if we take for granted the quality that we have, because I, I think we do. But that isn't the challenge. The challenge is convincing customers who come to Bubble doors come to Lady of the Great, come to where the, wherever Bert may end up on the scrap heap. No, no, no. In, in a place lucky enough to have him uh, come work there. And that is, this is a category uh, 
And you need to trust the fact that if you're prepared to spend 85 pounds or, or 75 or whatever it is on a bottle of classic red burgundy, white burgundy, uh, go to the new world, that uh, you need to experience these artisan wines, as Francis, you just said, these growers champagnes, because they will add so much excitement to your experience. And, and uh, I think almost, for me, almost more than anything else, I think the two, actually kind of the two exciting areas well, in white at the moment for me are growers Chablis, because again, I think there's a revolution going on in Chablis at the moment, uh, where I think that uh, it's really important that the artisan producers lay down exactly what they're capable of in uh, a world which is tending towards higher alcohol further south, and Grer's Champagne, where there's just this undiscovered myriad um, area of both complexity and simplicity at the same time. And it's up to us as uh, people who are importing and distributing, and you who are um, given the challenge perhaps to, to uh, make this come alive for your customers, to, to band together, because um, it's a lot easier to sell Grand Marc Champagne, and that's, there's a good reason for that. I think you missed one word in that, and that was value. There is so much more bang for buck in these wines than, than a bigger producer. I mean, they're incredible value, delicious drinking champagnes. And why is that? Uh, <laughs> Francis. Why is that? Um, because you're not paying for the lady who works in marketing and branding and positioning. You're you're paying for viticulture and and a great winery and great quality grapes. You're paying for what's in the bottle, not what's in the business model. Excellent. Both, of course, are very important. As I say, in a wider public, there are a lot of people who want to buy from marks. But I think in the specialist area, which perhaps we're talking about today, it's all about what's in the bottle. There's no, there's just no getting away from it. That, 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 that's for sure. So we've covered one or two areas so far. And um, I think the question we've got to ask ourselves is, faced with the challenge, but also the wonderful opportunity that, that working in the world of Grand Champagne uh, espouses. What are our sort of, what's the way forward here? Uh, do you think that over the next 10 years, Grand Champagnes are just going to grow in the category? Uh, and I'm not just talking about perhaps your individual areas of expertise, I'm talking about the market in general. What do you think is going to be happening there? Um, at the moment it's really tough, isn't it? There's a lot going on financially and when smaller growers have bad harvest and when they lose um, you know, they lose stock, it must be really, really tough, especially at the moment. There's not been a tough time. Um, but I think grower champagne at the moment is every, everyone's talking about it and it seems to be the, the, like, the new cool kid and it, it's amazing, but eventually there will be like with the, any trend, there'll be a backlash and wines like these that are exceptional that actually stand out will stand the test of time. But it's the same with any wine growing region, I guess, that you always got the, the young guys challenging and, and some make it through and carry on going, but others, others change. Fall by the wayside. Yeah, exactly, um, which, is, which is good. You always need healthy competition. Um, I was in South Africa recently and there were, I, I was at a, a, a 
real old school wineries asking them about what they think about the young guys making the really funky natural wines, which I love as well. Um, but they were like, we love it, we need to encourage it, and there needs to be this whole spectrum of different winemakers telling different stories at different points in their careers and making wines in different ways. Mm. And this is why I think grower champagne is important now, because if it was just the big boys, it'd be really boring. And I think the same thing's happening on Bordeaux as well. You've got these guys, like I had a pet map from Bordeaux um, before from Ormino, which is like really exciting. I want to see more of that. That's great. And it needs to be, like with, with these guys, they need to be challenging the big boys. And they are with wines like this as well, because it's all in the glass at the end of the day. No, I, I, I think you mentioned the word pet man. That's the first time this morning. And um, I think, no, but even I've sort of been exposed to pet man. And um, I think it is very exciting. And I think if you're really funny, daddy, and boring about it and defensive, actually, yeah. you get what you deserve, which is, uh, you know, go home, one yeah. your crutch. But you look at the there. price of Petnap as well. Like, you could have a really, really great time on, on, on a smaller budget because not everyone has got the budget, like on a Tuesday night, Wednesday night. You know, you're not going to go and drink Chuck Barbie, you never know. Right, okay, I'm going to take you up on that. So, so you're never going to go unless, of course, you make it affordable. Mm -hmm. So perhaps what some of us need to do on, uh, on early in the week is say, you know, come and drink a, one of our, well, it's kind of what you do with, you switch the offer and say, come and, you know, get a couple of hot dogs free or whatever it is. I think that's a great idea. But you've got to actually tailor your pricing mechanisms to encourage people to come out earlier on in the week. Must, must be the right way to go. But um, on the P word, of course, Petman and uh, the other PR word, well, Prosecco, of course. Uh, <laughs> but you know, Prosecco for, for everything, and um, here we won't hear about my views about Prosecco, but I think that anything that makes the market bigger and all this, you know, you give a different starting point to all of it, ultimately you go to where the, the true excellence is, and that will be champagne. It will never, you know, and we talk about great English sparkling wine, for instance. It is growing the market, and anything which is, you know, all I care about, and, and on a serious point, is that whatever you are offered to drink, it must be excellent of its type. And then there is there's every reason to have that. So I think Petnap, good idea, makes the market bigger, and coming back to growers champagne, you know, as you say, the really great ones will be there. Uh, they're there for the trip. These two boys and girls, uh, their supporters, as it were, um, you know, they're going to be here to stay. And I think they will focus on points of difference between what they offer and perhaps what the larger houses offer. It's just about getting getting grower champagne into people's repertoire. You've just got to get it in front of them. Okay. Yeah, and I, I think on that, you know, on that, let's talk about it now. Again, uh, Grower's Champagne kind of puts it on a pedestal, whereas what we're really talking about is Grower's Wines, which mm. is something which everybody deals with all the time. And they get it. And they get it. So they should get it with Grower's Wines. So, mm. you know, I want to talk more with our customers about the fact that there is no difference between what you have here today, uh, the bottles of champagne on the table, uh, and what you have every day in your restaurants with uh, a bottle of Chardonnay from a grower in Adelaide Hills or a grower in the Northern Rhone. And you've also got the Negociant in that area. You talked about Bordeaux. There are lots of new young growers coming out of Bordeaux, but there are the big 
Red Sea chateaus which aren't about to go away, and they they need to coexist together. So, Sandra, sorry, um, let's get back to what we were talking about. You know, in summary, I think the future of this whole area of growers. Um, are you are you optimistic? Do you think there's? Yeah, I'm very positive. I mean, it doesn't take just myself. It takes you know people like like them to champion as well, and for you guys to champion. I think if we all did our little part to kind of champion this growth of producers, then there is a chance. And I think Francis is right. Everything is about value for money now. People want value for money, and there's no better way to find it than in uh, grower producers in Champagne. You know, you get such wonderful wines for for less than what you pay for Grand Marks. And, and also, I think nowadays people want artisanal things. They want to know where things come from. You know, even if you go to Tesco's and Waitrose now, they, they label their meats, where it's from, you know, vegetables, where it's grown. Everybody kind of wants to know where the things that they're consuming is coming from. And if, in this case, you know, you get to know everything about them, you know. You certainly the, do. The name of their kids, you know. <laughs> Actually, Richard, where, where is the picture of the family on that anyway? <laughs> I think I th I thank you. I think there's some really important points you make, and I, I do think traceability something we've taken for granted here. But so we should, because if immediately you talk about bio and you look at the labels, the back labels, you look at the websites, it's 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 all there. So Carol, what what's um, what's your sort of take on the whole subject? What's your yeah, I think view for the future? Grow champagne getting are going to, to be more important and more trendy because yeah, people care more and more about what they eat and drink, about the quality, about the where it comes from. Um, and also I mean growth champagne, you know, you can just you can visit them, they you will see them in person which is also very different. You you're not arriving in factory like in the big branch okay. <laughs> So You are right. Mm. No you're not. Mm. Uh, and Francis, any Further thoughts on what you've already very uh, well said. I have a question. Excellent. I have a question for Fabrice and Richard about you're hearing our conversation, the questions we're asking around this table now. Uh, how how do you see the future? How do you see the next five years, ten years, fifteen years in in Champagne? <laughs> Difficult question. <laughs> I think uh, uh, growers need to understand that the good way is to give more uh, uh, importance to their soil and their terroir and their production. And I think, uh, yes, uh, we are all uh, agree that the people need more information, want more artisanal products, and uh, want to be in contact with the people who make the wine. So I think it's our future. but. Um, in Champagne, not a lot of people understand that it could be a good way. Mm. So it's just a problem, but it's inside Champagne. Um, but I think we can have a future with big brand and, and yeah, small growers. Sure. Uh, 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 nothing in the yeah. middle. Yes. Uh, the middle will be squeezed. Yeah, yes, sure. Yes, yes. Uh, you have the big brand who give a uh, uh, house style, uh, region uh, um, uh, picture and, and uh, discover new markets uh, for, for the region, but uh, we are on another vision, another vision of, of the region, and mm -hmm. we, we can be together. Uh, you can drink some, some, some champagne with a very uh, classic taste uh, uh, from Grand Marc everywhere, yeah, everywhere in the world, and if you need to have more precise, more, 
more information, more expression of the soil, you go in different uh, uh, establishments uh, in your restaurants uh, to discover yeah. other things. Mm. Yeah. Where are you seeing the most growth? Is it in international markets, the domestic market? I think for growers champagne, uh, first it was for in, in, in uh, export markets, and now mm. France begin to see that growers are interesting. Yeah. Mm. In second, in compare of the, the yes. results of the world. Yeah, if sure. you go, uh, for example, in Italy or in Japan, you have a champagne list with uh, uh, 40 growers uh, on 10 uh, Grand Marc. Uh, in yeah. France, in the three stars Michelin, a lot of uh, uh, restaurants, you have uh, 20 or uh, Grand Marc on only two or three growers. Yeah. But it changed. Mm. Show me the money, honey, <laughs> as they say. So, Richard, what is your uh, answer to Francis? I totally agree with, uh, with Fabrice. I, I think we have, uh, for grower, we, ha we have to be more transparent, we have to be more good with the nature and good with the customer. It's very important to, uh, to say what we do and to do what we say. Like it. <laughs> oh my god, your own message here this morning. Yeah. <laughs> wow. That's, a, that, that, that's absolutely, I'm, I, I'm sure that's right. And um, we, you know, the fact is that, you know, you guys are very, you, you come from small businesses, and in, in a way, coming to visit the market is a big investment for you. But I, I hope um, getting the message across to a wide audience about the future of Grand Champagnes makes it worth a while. But, um, you know, you. The wonderful thing is, probably which links us all in, in the room, is that everybody here, um, I think, is passionate about what's in the bottle. And um, as long as everybody really uh, searches excellence in whatever they do, I think there is, there is a definite demand for that. Afterwards, it's a question of uh, evangelizing to everybody else about coming aboard, because it's only with the influence of, of, of uh, people in this room to talk to other people that they start uh, they start working out well oh, that's quite interesting and having very different ways of communicating what is so special about Grand Champagne um, what what the positioning is offering great value for money which we can all do together I think you know varying um, because we're small um, uh, you know, taking different times of the week and maybe trying to encourage people to experiment. Uh, and then the rest of it is just working hard at excellence and describing the opportunities that exist both for our customers and, and your customers over and above that. And I think the mix of everything with great growers that are here produces a very exciting future. So thank you all for being here today. And my mouth is watering again. I'm going to have a bit more champagne to celebrate. And uh, I hope everybody has a great year and sells lots of girls' champagne. So thank you very much. Thanks, Willie. Thank you. Thank Thanks, you. guys. Cheers. 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 <laughs>
why not visit our website at bibendum-wine.co.uk.